You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Welcome to City Edge Church, Sunday the 24th of May. Um, This morning I want to talk about worship. And uh, as we continue through John chapter 4, and uh, you can get your Bibles ready at John chapter 4, but uh, worship is an integral part of the Christian life. But what, what does it actually mean to worship? And how do we worship God? I suspect if you took a survey, 9 out of 10 Christians would answer that worship is primarily singing songs to God at church on Sunday morning. And there might be some that would add it's singing songs in your private time during the week or maybe at your connect groups, wherever it may be. I have friends that go to a church that uh, worships without musical instruments. They, they sit in a circle, they sing the psalms uh, by voice only. Instruments are forbidden. Um, I'm not sure what they do when they come, come to Psalm 150 which talks about the clashing cymbals and the trumpets and the stringed instruments and lyres and flutes and all those sorts of things. But for them, any song that's less than 1,500 years old is rejected, even old favourites like Amazing Grace. But then at the other end of the scale, there's the large-scale productions in blacked-out halls with strobe lights and thunderously loud music and fog machines interpretive dance and prophetic painting going on. Which one really defines worship? Uh, Is it either of those or is it somewhere in between maybe? I actually think worship is not singing at all, whether that's accompanied by instruments or not. Singing may be a part of worship, but it isn't really worship itself. And if you look carefully at the lyrics of some of the most popular songs doing the rounds in Christian circles and on Christian radio, many of them seem to be worship songs all right, but worship of self sometimes, rather than worship of God. That's a pretty important thought to keep in mind, for the Bible makes pretty clear that it's disturbingly easy to worship someone or something other than God. But my intention this morning is not to launch an attack on the songs that people sing in church, although next week I will have a bit more to say about that. Rather, my desire is we get a better understanding of what worship really is, so that worship can actually be a way of life, not just something we do for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. So to that end, we come now to one of the most profound discussions that Jesus had with anyone, and it's a discussion we find in John chapter 4 about worship. And it's with one of the most unlikely people. As we know from previous studies, this person was a Samaritan, a race that the Jews despised as half-breed heretics and idolaters. This person was also a woman, uneducated, illiterate, someone whose opinions, needs and desires weren't important to other people. And to cap it all off, she has a troubled past and appears to be living in sin at the moment. To most people, she was someone to avoid at all costs, but not to Jesus. Jesus sought her out to tell her things that he has told no one else so far. 
and to tell her deep truths about God. We've been here in this text for a few weeks now, so you know the story. I don't need to go over too much of it. After surprising her by asking for a drink of water, Jesus then proceeds to offer her living water, water that will never run out. She, of course, wants this water so she doesn't have to come to this well alone and lonely in the heat of the day, every day. Then Jesus digs a little bit deeper by asking her to go fetch her husband and to bring him back. She replies with the half-truth that she's not married. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus knows better, of course, and he recites her marital history for her. She is no doubt shocked by this, but the light begins to dawn on on her that there is something special about this man, something that sets him apart from other men. Verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I perceive you are a prophet, she says, and immediately changes the subject. No doubt she's a bit uncomfortable about having her past exposed by this stranger, but she doesn't run away. Jesus has a way of gently exposing sin that both hurts and heals at the same time. This may well be a legitimate question and not just a diversionary tactic. Jews and Samaritans have disagreed for centuries about the proper place of worship. For the Jews, it had to be Jerusalem. The writings of their Bible, which is our Old Testament, make that explicit. Both Jews and Samaritans understood that God had commanded their ancestors to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation. There you shall go to worship. That's Deuteronomy 12.5 if you're taking notes. So they built a a temple in Samaritan territory on Mount Gerizim. To be fair, they didn't choose the site to go into competition with the Jews, nor did they choose it randomly. They chose the site based on their understanding of Deuteronomy 12.5 that said, Seek the place that the Lord your God has chosen, past tense. So they searched out their scriptures and decided, based on their Bible, that God had chosen Mount Gerizim. But therein lies part of the problem. The Samaritans rejected all of the Jewish Bible except the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, which meant they rejected the word of God spoken through all the various prophets that established Jerusalem as the only place to worship. You know, we Christians are not immune to picking and choosing the scriptures we like to support our ideas and our preferences and our wants either. And just like the Samaritans, we get ourselves in trouble when we do that. We need the whole counsel of God, not just the bits we like. That sometimes means we must deal with ideas that make us uncomfortable for a while until we properly grasp them. But ultimately, it's for our protection and our maturity. Someone has pointed out that every heresy, every false teaching, 
that leads to eternal destruction contains just enough truth to be believable. In fact, half-truths are often more deadly than the outright lie. That's why the devil came to Eve with questions and seeds of doubt rather than outright attack. It's why he came to Jesus with half-truths. He knows how effective a weapon half-truths can be. And the Samaritans had succumbed to this by rejecting the rest of the scriptures. And as we'll soon see, Jesus has no time for the idea that you can believe whatever you like, or that all religions are equally valid, or that all will eventually lead to salvation. So, if this man really is a prophet, he may have the answer to the question they've been asking for centuries. Where, sir? Here on Mount Gerizim, where we have worshipped for 400 years? Or in Jerusalem, like you Jews claim? Where is the right place to worship? Now, the temple in Jerusalem had been built as a dwelling place for God among his people. It had been destroyed and rebuilt over the centuries. Then, after hundreds of years of decay, King Herod commenced rebuilding it in around 18 BC. This work went on for more than 80 years before it was finally completed. Then only a few years after completion, the Romans tore it to the ground. It's never been rebuilt, and a Muslim mosque now stands on the site, a cause of great lament for the Jews. But the temple was never meant to stand forever. Like so much of the Old Testament, it was a picture of things to come. It wasn't the fulfilment. Do you remember back in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers and the merchants in the temple courts? When he was challenged about it, what was his response? He said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples about the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Then later on, Paul writes to the Romans, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he also writes to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We could go on, but I think this illustrates the point. The physical temple was only ever meant to be temporary. Up until that time that Christ came and tore down the barrier between God and man that prevented a holy God dwelling in people and not just with them. This was always God's intention from before creation and the time was now arriving. In verse 21, Jesus says to the woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, 
for salvation is from the Jews. Where you worship is about to become irrelevant. But the fact that there will no longer be a specific place to worship and the fact that the temple is about to become internal, not an external physical structure, doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that how we worship no longer matters. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. There was only one source of saving faith in those days and truth. And that was the Jews. God had revealed truth to them and only to them. God had sent his son as a Jew to the Jews. And he would bring fulfillment of God's plan and God's truth to Samaritans and to the world through the Jews. The Jewishness of Jesus has been offensive to many races of people for 2,000 years now. Every race and every nation at some stage has felt superior to the Jews. And many continue to feel that way today. The Jews as a race have been hounded, persecuted and slaughtered by virtually every other nation for their whole history. Yet they survive to this day. What does that tell you about God's protection of the Jews? You attack them at your peril. There's no getting around the fact that we Christians owe the Jews a debt. We owe them a debt for faithfully preserving the scriptures for us for centuries. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 9, They are Israelites, Jews, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We owe them a debt for being the race that God chose to birth his beloved son, our saviour, into. And as strange as it may seem, we owe them a debt for fulfilling the plan of God for our salvation by hounding him persecuting him and slaughtering him to bring us life. To this day, there is only one source of salvation, not many, and that source is the Jew, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Moving on to chapter uh, verse 23 of John 4. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, where you worship... Soon won't matter, Jesus tells her. But how you worship is and always will be critically important. For the Father is seeking true worshippers. But what does that mean? What are true worshippers? And this is where I think we come a bit unstuck. We begin to misunderstand worship. 
and much of what happens in many church services seems to have little to do with true worship in my opinion. But before we go too far into that, we need to know what we're talking about. And to do that, we firstly need to define the English word worship, and then we need to look at what the Hebrew and the Greek words in the Bible mean. Now, English dictionaries define worship as reverent honour and homage paid to God or a sacred personage or to any object regarded as sacred. The phrase or to any object regarded as sacred is important to note as it tells us that we can worship things as well as or instead of God. The word worship comes from the old English word worthship, which I'm sure you've all heard, meaning to ascribe worth or value to something. I think that's a helpful definition. Worthship denotes the worthiness of an individual to receive special honour in accordance to what they are worth. And before we go any further, let's look at what the words mean that are used in the Bible. You know, of course, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, mostly, and in and New Testament was written in Greek. And the most commonly used words in both languages mean virtually the same thing. The Hebrew word means to prostrate oneself, to bow down. It's a physical act that indicates your humility before the one you are bowing down to. It may be another human being, or it may be a divine being. Think of a person bowing when they're introduced to the Queen. That's the idea. It's also used when greeting strangers, or even when begging. Essentially, the action denotes the superiority of the one you are bowing down to. Now, this word's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. But sadly, most of those times, it's used in reference to bowing down to idols and pagan gods, not to the true God. There are a few different Greek words used. The most commonly used word means, surprise, surprise, to fall prostrate in adoration or homage. The physical act of lowering oneself in humble submission with an attitude of utmost adoration or respect. The other Greek words all mean much the same thing with various shades of meaning. Note that none of the words in either language have any connection with singing. Interesting. So what does this brief initial look at worship tell us? Worship can be offered up to someone or something without a single word of a song being sung. Worship can be offered up without necessarily being in a good frame of mind. Worship is acknowledging the superior worth of another, whether that other is superior by their social standing or their wealth or their age or their good works. Worship can even be offered up without a flood of emotion, believe it or not. Worship can be offered up any time you choose and in any circumstance. And worship can be given to things, objects, people, not just to God. Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words makes a note that the worship of God is nowhere defined in Scripture. Broadly, it may be regarded as the direct acknowledgement to God of his nature, attributes, ways and claims, whether by the outgoing of the heart in praise and thanksgiving, 
or by deed done in such acknowledgement. One of the things I noticed as I was preparing this message is that there's not a lot of singing associated with worship in the Bible, either Old Testament or New Testament. Now that surprised me a bit, because like most of us, I've been conditioned to think of worship as being primarily singing to God. Now we won't have time to look at most of the Bible passages in detail. There are a few hundred of them we would have to look through, but I'll just touch on a few that are representative of the next, of the rest. And the first explicit mention of worship is in Genesis 22, when Abraham's taking his son Isaac away to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham said to the young men that were with him, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Now I don't know about you, but I find it hard to imagine Abraham singing about the glories of putting his son to death. But Abraham was obeying God, and by his obedience he was ascribing worth to God. Obedience is an important part of worship. Abraham was saying in effect, God, I trust you enough to obey your command, for you are worthy of my obedience. In the book of Exodus, we see the first example of singing when Moses, Miriam and the people celebrate their escape from Egypt and sing about their miraculous rescue. There's no mention of worship specifically there, but I think it'd probably be fair to say that they were worshipping as they were singing because they were celebrating the, uh, the power and the goodness and the mercy of God in rescuing them. The very next example of singing is specifically connected with worship. But sadly, it's worship of an idol. While Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, the people in the camp were singing and dancing around a golden calf that Aaron had made for them. It's Exodus 32, if you want to read the story for yourself. It doesn't take much for us to turn our focus away from God to worship something else. Now that there are plenty of songs recorded in scripture. There's plenty of singing that goes on and it's usually associated with some sort of victory or rescue. But remarkably little of it seems to be directly associated with worship. It's not until the time of David that we see singing specifically associated with the house of the Lord in First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles sorry, chapter 6. But interestingly... This singing was done by a team of singers, by a choir that David had appointed, not by the people generally. They performed, this choir performed their task day and night while the people worshipped. Now this might be a good time to ask a question. If we're to assume that worship equals singing, as most of us do, then how are we to worship God day and night unceasingly? Now what would you think of the traffic cop who's, who's singing as he gives you a speeding ticket? Or the business executive who's singing at the board meeting while deciding the direction of the company and the fate of a thousand employees? What about the brain surgeon singing during that delicate operation that will save your life? Or the soldier singing as he tries to silently infiltrate enemy lines to capture or kill a terrorist leader. And you know, 
when the devil asked Jesus to fall down and worship him, do you think he was expecting Jesus to break out in song? I doubt it. You might argue that people can be thinking the songs, they don't need to be singing them out loud, and, well, that's true. But the Bible seems to indicate that worship is something we do, not something we think. Hence why the devil wanted Jesus to fall down, not just to sing to him. It would be an act of submission to the devil, establishing the devil forever as Jesus' superior. Now, if worship does equal singing, how are we to do it unceasingly? Even the most energetic of us must sleep sometimes. There must be more to worship than singing. Now, as I said, there is plenty of worship that happens in the Bible, but singing, congregational or individual, seems to be remarkably absent from it. Generally, the singing part seems to be done by an appointed team, but the worship part is done by everyone and frequently involves bowing down or falling down before the one being worshipped. We won't go there today, but Second Chronicles chapter 29, I think, shows that very clearly if you're taking notes. So there is singing associated with worship, but scripture seems to indicate that singing songs doesn't necessarily have much to do with worship, or certainly not true worship. We'll look a little more at that next week, but compounding that is the fact that many Christian song lyrics seem to have little to say about God but plenty to say about me. Yet often people will go home declaring, how good was the worship today? If worship is about something other than merely singing, then it may just be that we are able to worship day and night. We are able to worship in the board meeting, the delicate surgery, the military attack, on the factory production line, in front of the computer, even while watching TV. Paul wrote in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This verse alone tells me that there's more to worship than singing. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, that harkens back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We're to do it in response to God's mercies. That acknowledges the superiority of God and our dependence on him. And this living sacrifice is to be holy and acceptable. That says something about our obedience to God. And this is our spiritual worship. That phrase should immediately make you think of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman about worshipping in spirit and truth. I'll talk about that more next week. But how are we to do this? If worship means to ascribe worth, how do we ascribe worth in areas that are outside the four walls of the church, in our secular life? How do we worship all the time and in every circumstance? One thing that becomes obvious when we look at the Bible's examples of worship is that it involves humbling oneself by bowing down before a person who deserves respect 
and honour. And another is that it frequently involves sacrifice of some sort, whether that be the Old Testament pattern of sacrificing an animal, or by the New Testament example, maybe of the Magi who brought gifts to the infant Jesus when they came to worship him. Because worship, first and foremost, is something we do. Therefore, it's also something we can choose to do. We can humble ourselves before God, bowing down to him, whether that's in a physical act or in an attitude of the heart, acknowledging that he alone is sovereign over all things. Therefore, he alone is worthy of receiving our honour and praise and worship. He deserves all worship in all circumstances. And he still deserves our worship even in the most bitter circumstances. Have you lost everything important to you? Your job, your possessions, your friendships, even your health? Ask Job if the Lord is worthy of worship in the midst of great loss and great pain. He would tell you to fall on the ground and worship, saying the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ask the apostles in Acts 5, who were flogged by the Pharisees for speaking about Jesus, but left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. He is worthy of worship all the time and in every circumstance. Do you feel enslaved by your job? Do you hate it so much that you can find no reason to worship God for it? Remember, the Lord has put you exactly where he wants you, at the exact time he wants you to be there. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. You can worship God in the midst of the daily grind of work, no matter what your work is, if you approach it as if you are doing it directly for the Lord. Because that passage says that's exactly what you're doing. If the Lord has seen fit to give you gainful employment, regardless of whether you enjoy it or not, you have cause to worship him by fulfilling your duties to your boss. How do you worship God in your family relationships? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Can you worship when you're out shopping? How do you ascribe worth to God at the shops? Firstly, by giving thanks for his provision, the fact that you can go out and buy food is God's provision for you. But you can offer your spot to the, in the checkout line 
to the mum who's trying to keep control of her kids. You can treat the staff with respect and honour. You can speak up if the checkout girl has undercharged you. There's many ways we can worship God even while we're shopping. You can worship God by showing hospitality to strangers, by being generous with your time, by supporting charities with your finances that are doing work that you can't do personally. Every time we see in Scripture something that, that God is telling us that we should do and we obey, we're worshipping God. There's a million ways we can worship God in our daily life without opening our mouths once to sing. Because worship isn't just about singing on Sunday morning. It's much, much more than that. We do ourselves a disservice if we limit worship to singing. And we deny God some of the honour that is due to him by limiting it to a Sunday morning. What makes something an act of worship is the desire to honour God by obeying him from your heart. Now I don't want to put down singing in church, suggesting that worship is only meant to be for our daily life. Worship, including singing, is meant to be part of our church life also, our Sunday gathering and our midweek gatherings. Sunday church is called a worship service for a reason. So how do we ascribe worth in our church gatherings? Firstly, by taking seriously God's command to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday, or as we're forced to do at the moment, remotely by Zoom. There should be a settled conviction in your heart that God is so worthy of worship that you'll obey his command to not neglect the gathering together of the saints. You can worship by encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing their burdens and praying for them. You can worship by taking seriously the preached word of God by listening to hear the Lord speak and responding to the prompting of his, his Holy Spirit through the Word, and by listening with discernment to understand his Word and to grow in your knowledge of him. And yes, you can worship by lifting up your voice together with the other saints to sing songs of praise and exaltation to our Lord. So I said there's a million ways we can worship God in our daily life. Only some of them involve singing, but all of them involve a glad obedience and submission to the one who is worthy. In this way, we can worship God no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how frustrating our job may be, no matter how much pain we are in, no matter how poor we are. John 4 verse 20 5. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to, you, to her, I who speak to you am he. Yes, M Messiah, he who is called Christ, came and is coming again. Will you be found to be the kind of worshipper the Father seeks in that day? In the end, Worship, true worship, 
is not rooted in whether we understand what's happening to us or what's happening in the world, nor is it rooted in whether we like or enjoy what's going on around us, and nor is it rooted in whether it's what we would do if we were God. Rather, true worship is rooted in the character of God, that God never does wrong, that everything God does is right, that God is always good, even if it seems bad to us, that God always, in some way, does the best thing. And a God like that is always worthy of worship. Job understood that. I hope you can too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be worshippers, those who worship you in spirit and truth. But Heavenly Father, you've put that deposit in our hearts to worship you. Lord, this week we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us how to worship in every area of our life, not just when we sing. For our desire, Lord, is to give you the honour and praise and glory that you deserve every day and in everything we do. May you be honoured by our life, by our actions, by our thoughts, by our obedience and by our love. For you alone, Lord, are worthy of honour and praise and worship. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.